Specialty Story, session number 96. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join me today. If you didn't know you're listening to this and you think this is the only podcast that I do, well, you would be mistaken. If you are a medical student, I also do board rounds with Board Vitals, a test prep company. And if you are a pre-med student, I have tons of pre-med podcasts like the Pre-Med Years and Old Pre-Meds podcasts and the MCAT podcasts, to name a few. Go check them all out at mededmedia.com. Today, we have a great discussion with a general surgery program director. We're going to talk to Dr. Brian Smith about his journey to becoming a surgeon and what he expects from applicants to be competitive to his program and what you can do right now to be more competitive as an applicant and as a medical student. We start the discussion with how Dr. Smith became interested in general surgery. My sort of epiphany when it came to general surgery really started in first year of medical school. When I started medical school, I wanted to be a family practitioner and because I liked the idea of continuity and really sort of being able to take care of the whole patient. But very quickly after starting my rotations in the anatomy lab, I came to realize that I had a tremendous uh, love and passion for human anatomy. Not only that, but I, I, I think with that love and passion came uh, rapid acceleration. I, I became very good at human anatomy very quickly, and I began teaching it in the lab to many of my colleagues. And I also quickly learned that the best way to really master something is to teach it. Mm-hmm. And so that time in the anatomy lab was really sort of when I, the, it was the first time I'd ever really considered surgery. Uh, because it was clear to me that if I wanted to spend most of my career involved with and intimately tied into human anatomy, that surgery would be an excellent way to do so. So that that was really sort of my early beginning. It sounded very similar to me when I was first interested in orthopedics, dissecting mm-hmm. a cat in high school. It's like, ooh, cutting things is kind of fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and the intricacies of the yeah. human, uh, you know, of well, any anatomy for that part, but, but certainly human anatomy, uh, it's just, it never ceases to be fascinating. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good general surgeon? Well, that's a good question. I've had a number of medical students ask me that over the years. And I would say one of the first and probably most basic traits of wanting to be a a proceduralist, which is kind of the first level I think you need to, a student needs to answer for themselves is, do you like working with your hands and do you like either diagnosing or treating things? Do you like working with your hands or do you like working with your brain? Once you've sort of answered that question and you've moved down the, I like working with my hands pathway, you start to become, okay, I'm down the proceduralist path. When it comes to actual general surgery, uh, I think that my inherent tendency to enjoy fixing things, the satisfaction that it that comes with identifying a problem and, and applying a, a definitive fix to it 
is sort of in my nature. I like to tinker with things. I like to fix things. I'm handy around the house. Uh, I used to enjoy working on my car. There was, there's always been this inherent uh, passion and joy for taking a problem and giving a, it a definitive fix. And I think that that was one of the reasons that I headed down the general surgery path. In addition to the fact that general surgery is just that. You get a huge variety of things you get to fix, a variety of things you get to be good at and, and apply your knowledge and apply your skills to. And so I, I think with, for all of those reasons, general surgery really became, surgery became the clear choice. General became the choice when it was obvious that I needed the variety and enjoyed the variety that comes with general surgery. With medicine becoming more and more subspecialized, why would somebody choose to be a general surgeon? And if they do that, is there any risk of kind of running out of patients in their career? Excellent question. So I'll answer your last part first, which is absolutely not. There will never be a shortage of general surgery patients. And in mm -hmm. fact, the one of the beauties of general surgery is we take care of the whole patient. That's one of the, our, our sort of our benchmark and herald sources of pride in general surgery is that we're really an internal medicine physician that operates. We take care of the whole patient. And if our surgical patient needs their diabetes treated or their hypertension treated or their uh, renal insufficiency treated, we, we pride ourselves on being able to manage the entire patient and then be able to at the same time operate and fix uh, their their derangements. And so I've long thought and long felt that there is a tremendous kinship with either family medicine or certainly internal medicine who really sort of serves as a contractor for all of the patient's ailments and, and really manage them all. So when it comes to subspecialization, there is absolutely a uh, a drive and a movement in the direction of increasing subspecialization uh, uh, of current trainees. And that is probably a trend that's not going to dramatically change in the near future. But for those people that really have a broad interest and like to take care of the whole patient and not just one little corner of the body, whether it be bones and joints or whether it be their lungs or whether it be their uh, hepatobiliary system, for somebody that really likes to care for the patient from head to toe, general surgery is, it really has that to offer. And much like internal medicine, many people stay in internal medicine because they like to they like to have their knowledge base be broad and their capabilities be broad. So I, I've always I always worried that subspecialization would result in my knowledge base becoming much more narrow. Mm -hmm. And certainly early on in one's career, I think most people want to have that that sort of broad knowledge base. I just don't think I'm ever going to want to give that up, which is one of the reasons I've, I've stuck with general surgery. What are some of the bread and butter cases for a general surgeon? So a lot of the definition of bread and butter in 2019 is dictated by the community in which you serve. If you are a rural general surgeon out in the Midwest and there's not a lot of specialists in town, you're probably going to do more than the general surgeon in downtown Los Angeles where there are specialists on every corner. But so I, I will try to, to sort of focus my answer to your question to a, a generalization. And that is in most suburban environments, either urban or suburban environments, bread and butter for a general surgeon is going to consist of gastrointestinal surgery, colons, gallbladders, hernias, 
endocrine surgery, which includes thyroids, parathyroids, adrenals, um, perhaps some occasional liver, spleen, etc. Uh, probably some skin melanoma, skin cancers, breast surgery uh, is definitely bread and butter for most general surgeons. And occasionally some extremity work when it comes to soft tissue tumors and things of that nature. I think that kind of covers the bulk of what a, a modern generalized general surgeon looks like in 2019. What do you like about being a general surgeon the most? Well, I, I love being able to take care of all of the patient's needs. It's not very common that I need to call on a specialist to provide specialized input for the care of my patient. So I pride myself in really being able to, to handle most everything. And from an operative perspective, I love being able to travel all over the body. I rarely do two of the same operation in, a same, in, in one day. And in fact, in one week, I rarely do an operation more than twice. And so that means I'm constantly doing something different. It forces me to keep up on the literature or on current advancements in that area. It keeps me sharp and it keeps me interested. My, my job never gets dull, never gets boring. Sounds like it's good for a variety junkie. Absolutely. What do you like the least? Well, I would say what I like the least is probably a lot of the administrative aspects that come with surgery in 2019. Uh, there's a lot of time spent charting in the electronic medical record, which in and of itself is a wonderful thing, but that takes extra time. And that's sometimes a distraction or less time that I can spend, you know, face to face, just sitting and listening to my patient and, and being a good listener. Cause I think that's prerequisite to be a good clinician in almost any specialty. So what I dislike the least are the administrative sides that distract me from just having that sort of human-to-human -human interaction and bonding that makes a good physician-patient relationship uh, one of the most, most enriching parts of one's day. And so anything that distracts from that is what I like the least. What does a training path look like for a general surgeon? So... The current standard is that uh, a medical student will apply for general surgery and they'll match into an internship, a categorical internship followed by residency. I at least for general surgery, we really don't distinguish interns internship and residency because they're all one continuum. Mm -hmm. uh, the first year just being an internship. And so uh, the fastest one can train in general surgery nowadays is five years. There are a handful of programs across the country that are six-year programs well, the, where they will have one year of mandatory research. And then there's a small smattering of of programs that are seven-year programs where there will be two years of mandatory research, most of which is usually basic science research. I would say the the seven-year programs are heavily focused on basic science for those two years of research. The six-year programs are more heavily focused on clinical outcomes research during that year of mandatory research. And then the standard five-year programs, which is the bulk of them, really are focused on training somebody to be clinically competent. And uh, a resident may or may not be expected to have some uh, research productivity during that time, but it definitely would not be the focus in a five-year program. What are the different career trajectories for those different types of programs? 
So one of the beauties about general surgery is you're still a totipotent stem cell. You can still differentiate into a number of different specialties. You can train in general surgery and go out and practice, or you can then go do a one-year fellowship in minimally invasive surgery or bariatric surgery or thoracic surgery or spend several years doing cardiac surgery or a combined cardiothoracic fellowship. You can still go do a year of colorectal fellowship. You can still go and do additional training in plastic surgery. You can do, go do a year of breast surgery. You can go do a year of endocrine surgery. So you can stop after your general surgery training and be the generalist, or you can still go down one of 10 or 12 different pathways now, some ACGME certified and a few not, to get specialized fellowship training in order to be better at a particular subsection of general surgery. And that actually was my career path. I, I enjoyed being a general surgeon, but I did a year of fellowship in minimally invasive bariatric surgery, which is not the entire focus of what I do. I still get to be a general surgeon, but I have that specialized sort of niche training, which I enjoy several days of the week, depending on if I'm at the university or at the VA. As a program director for a general surgery residency, what are you looking for in an applicant? Excellent question. And I'm often asked that by many of our own medical students. As a surgery program director, one of the first things I'm looking for is somebody who has a broad interest and is eager to learn. Uh, though that is something that I can't necessarily train into somebody. Those are inherent traits that I need the applicant to bring with them. And so I'm looking for those traits in applicants. Now, on, on sort of a more specific or more tangible level, I'm looking for somebody who's academically qualified. Sadly, the best measure of that is still USMLE Step 1. And since not everybody has taken Step 2 by the time they apply, I really can't use Step 2 as vigilantly or as diligently as I do Step 1. So they need to do well in Step 1. Uh, ideally, I want to see somebody who has a good solid dean's letter because part of that also reflects how they've done on their clinical clerkships, how many courses they've honored, how they did in surgery. After how they did in surgery, my next most important thing I look at is how did they do in their internal medicine rotation? Mm. Because again, getting back to that kinship with internal medicine, somebody who's broadly interested and really likes to take care of the whole patient. That, to me, is an appealing characteristic. Probably after that, we start to look more closely at letters of recommendation. And then after that, we start to look at research background, uh, personal characteristics, whether somebody you know, has done some unique things in their life. Um, and so that's sort of the cascade of importance that you, you'll never, I'll never get to somebody's letters of recommendation if they're not academically qualified in the first place. So it sort of moves in that hierarchy of importance, if you will. And I think that's the case for probably most program directors these days. There's a big push for step one to go pass, no pass. What are your thoughts on that as a program director? I love the idea of it. I love the concept because I completely recognize that there are a lot of students that either have a bad day or they, they, they choke on the exam for one reason or another, and they just don't achieve their potential. And it's a, it's a tragedy to think that somebody might not be able to join a specialty that they genuinely are interested in simply because of how they do on one exam. So the, the magnitude of the high stakes step one, I think, is a problem that needs to go away. 
But my biggest concern is we don't have a good other surrogate. We don't have another good measure, easily identifiable measure, to help determine one's academic qualifications. It does require program directors to really look at an entire application and not just a step one, perhaps, as a screening score, which I think many, many program directors in all kinds of specialties do. So I like the concept of it not being a weeder or a screener, if you will. But I wish we had an, uh, an additional, some sort of a composite measure of one's academic qualifications. Uh, it's not to suggest that if one is not highly academically qualified or does really well on tests, that they can't be a fantastic clinician. And in fact, oftentimes some of the real gems that I find are not the people that completely knock step one out of the park. But I want to make sure that they did well enough on it to where they're not going to struggle on their in-service exams. They're not going to struggle passing their written board exam, which is one of my primary endpoints as a program director. I want my applicants to, to train, be well-trained, but also to easily get out and obtain their board certification, which requires a certain amount of academic qualification. So, again, I like the concept. I think we lack uh, additional surrogates that can serve as a, uh, a, as a good marker of academic qualifications in the meantime. So I have a little bit of concern, even though I support the concept. Somebody listening to you right now who may not understand the, the whole residency path and what that looks like, maybe hearing you say the academic qualifications and they're like, well, it's residency. All I'm doing is seeing patients and operating and, and I'm good there, right? I, I, I'm a good person. I have good conversation skills. Why do I need to have academic qualifications. Can you talk through the in-service exams and what that looked like and, and what the board actually looks like for your written boards? Yes. So part of being a, a, a fantastic clinician is having the book smarts and the knowledge to back up your clinical skills. Residency, I think, does a phenomenal job of, or at least a, a good residency program does a phenomenal job of developing clinical skills. But in your average five-year program, uh, a resident who doesn't have a whole lot of book knowledge and a whole lot of uh, fund of knowledge as a foundation can continue to excel and do well just about until you get to the fourth year of residency. In the fourth year of residency, there is so much, uh, there's so much clinical skill that now starts to rely on a solid fund of knowledge as a foundation, that you may be clinically stellar and you may be technically very good in the operating room, but if you don't have the clinical foundation to back up, or excuse me, the knowledge foundation to back up those clinical skills, that deficiency starts to get a spotlight on it right around the beginning of your fourth year. And if that deficit in knowledge continues into the fifth year, it really starts to be an anchor for a good resident. This is not just about showing up at work and doing your thing and going home and doing that continuously for five years. There's a tremendous knowledge base that backs up any clinical superstar. And if people are not academically qualified, what I, what I, I should clarify what I mean by that, academically capable of sitting down and, and synthesizing and getting a tremendous knowledge base in their head to back up their decision-making and their instincts, which they learn as residents, with, without that fund of knowledge as your foundation, your house starts to get quite wobbly with its walls, so to speak. And so 
academic qualifications really are about establishing that somebody has the, uh, the study habits, the intellectual capacity, and capability to, to pack a lot of information into your brain about a particular specialty. And in this case, general surgery, there's a lot to learn. And so I want to make sure that, that the people that are coming in, I, I, I feel like I can train almost anybody. But I need to make sure that they have the intellectual capacity to, to gather and synthesize the huge volume of knowledge that is the foundation under which somebody builds a house of clinical superstardom. You said you can train almost anyone. For someone who have always thought about being a general surgeon but is concerned about their manual dexterity – is that something that you can teach if they have the other traits of a good general surgeon? Absolutely. As with any other manual skill, improvement comes with practice. Now, there are some people that are going to have to practice more than others. Can anybody learn to play the piano? Yes. Are some people going to pick it up faster than others? Yes. Are some going to really soar with those skills and be master pianists, whereas others are just going to be proficient? Absolutely. So I think you can train almost anybody to be a surgeon. What is a tougher uh, challenge is training a clinical superstar, because that really requires somebody to not just have good technical skills, but have a, a, a very deep knowledge base that backs up those clinical skills. And the third leg of the stool is the interpersonal interactions that make that person a well-rounded clinician, a well-rounded doctor. I can train almost anybody to be a surgeon, but I need them to bring some traits to the table in order for them to be a great doctor. What are good medical students doing on their sub-eyes that really help them stand out? So uh, a superstar sub-eye will oftentimes be almost seamless with an intern. I think we, we spend a lot of time in the third year just learning how to function comfortably in the hospital environment. We kind of start the third year feeling like fish out of water, but by the end, we know how to describe and intelligibly talk about different studies and diagnostic tests and how to get things ordered and who to call and, and how to sort of, you know, accomplish patient care on a day-to-day -day basis. The, a good sub-eye starts to put all of the things that they've learned to actual practice which is in reality what a good intern does. So in my mind, a, a fantastic sub-eye is somebody who is functioning pretty much at the level of an intern. And I think that students that, uh, that have a lot of charisma and are self-starters and figure out how to start a new rotation, quickly get up to speed with what are the important details and facts and interactions that need to occur for that particular specialty and, and execute those things in an efficient manner. Learning how to become efficient is also one of the critical tasks that I think a good sub-I needs to master. And so efficiency matters, interpersonal interactions matter, uh, making sure that, that you're able to function uh, on a high level with all the other members of the team, whether it be the nurse in the operating room or the nurse in the ER or the attending physician or the case manager or the utilization nurse on the ward. There's so many different players on the team for inpatient care in particular that being able to navigate all of those seamlessly through very good interpersonal interactions is also something that 
I think some people either really shine or really flounder with. So a good sub-eye masters all of that as well. They're reading about their patients. They know their patients backwards and forwards because usually most sub-eyes don't have a tremendous volume of patients that they're following. So I think people expect them to know those patients really well and be reading about those disease processes. A student will never have a better opportunity to solidify in their own mind all of the details of a disease process as they will when they have a patient with that disease process and then they're home reading about it every night. That's how you remember diverticulitis is you treat the patient with diverticulitis and you go home and you read about it and you read about it again the next night and you get more in detail. And so knowing your patients, understanding the disease processes that affect those patients, figuring out how to interact with the rest of the team in the hospital and to be efficient with your, your work duties. These are all the things that I think really allow a sub-eye to stand out and shine. What's the fastest way you've seen a medical student shoot themselves in the foot? Uh, I would say treating those beneath them with disdain. Mm. And what I mean is a medical student who comes into the operating room and, uh, you know, talks down to the circulating nurse or they go into the ICU and um, are disrespectful to the ICU nurse. Uh, you know, nurses that do the same thing over and over for many years know what they're doing very, very well, oftentimes as much or almost better than some physicians, depending on the physician's experience. And so when medical students, I think, come in and they fail to recognize the knowledge and the expertise in the rest of the team that is involved in a patient's care, and they fail to, to respect and understand and utilize that, those people's knowledge to, to the best extent, oftentimes shoot them in the foot. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Almost every year when I have after residency interviews, there will be at least one, if not two applicants that my program coordinator walks in and says, uh, no, no thanks. This person, you know, was very disrespectful to one of the people in our office or was rude and dismissive to me uh, because I'm not a physician. You know, mistreating the support staff is the kiss of death. When it comes to the application process for residency, what mistakes are you seeing medical students making that that they should know better that you hope improve in the future? Well, uh, what I just mentioned, making sure you're always respectful to everybody yeah. on the interview, but in terms of the application itself, I think that if people don't do as well on step one as they wish they had, or it's not a true reflection of what they think that they're knowledge and skills are, they need to study up and take step two and let step two prove that step one was not, a, was not an accurate reflection of what their capabilities are. Mm -hmm. So if, if, I, if I am interviewing somebody for whatever reason that has kind of a mediocre step one and they never took step two prior to the application cycle, I, I'm really kind of scratching my head and saying, well, gosh, did, were you afraid you were going to do worse on step two? Uh, so I, I think that oftentimes people fail to look at step two as a meaningful shot at redemption, for lack of a better description. So uh, that's certainly one of them. And then when people uh, do their clinical rotations in the third year, certainly early in the fourth year, and their performance is very average, particularly for somebody who's early on in their fourth year doing a sub-I, an average performance on a sub-I 
is somebody who probably is not going to do really well on, on, on my service. Mm -hmm. And so I think failing to recognize that a sub I really is your, your audition yeah. and treating it like such is a, a huge misstep. So I would say those are probably the top three things I would point out as, as uh, major flubs. How important are elective rotations? So there's a lot of variability that students get from mentor to mentor about the importance of outside rotations. I have always been a firm believer that outside rotations are critically vital to maximizing one's chance of matching in a program that they're really happy with. I will be the first to state that I matched at a residency program that I never did a sub-I at. Um, half of my class had done sub-I's at that pro program and half had not. But in general, uh, uh, an external rotation is a, is, is a very easy way to get an interview at that institution. And particularly for people who may have mediocre applications, those are the people that ought to be out doing external rotations to maximize the likelihood that they're going to perform at a really high level and hence get an interview at that program that they may not have otherwise gotten. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's important to, to, I usually encourage our students to go actually do two external rotations uh, and, and then fill the rest of them in at our own school of medicine, because that's two additional auditions that you get to go show what a superstar you are and prove to those programs that you are somebody that they really don't want to live without. Now, it's no secret that a lot of students are using the general surgery residency as a stepping stone into the specialty of their choice. And when it comes to their applications, if you're seeing somebody who is a little bit too enthusiastic of their subspecialty and, and you're concerned maybe they're not going to enjoy the general surgery processes, does that raise any red flags? Uh, it, that's an interesting question. Uh, almost every year when we're going through and sort of ranking people and discussing with the people that had performed their interviews, you know, what their feedback was, it's very common that, that an interviewer will say, oh, yeah, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so uh, was a really good applicant. He interviewed really well, but it seems pretty clear he's really focused on plastic surgery and that, that this is really just a stepping stone to get there. I would be probably less than transparent if I suggested that that never matters. Now, that being said, at the end of the day, I pride myself on, on my and my program's ability to really uh, help people enthusiastically embrace general surgery. And the number of residents in my own program that start with one idea about what they want to do as a subspecialty down the line and then change their mind, I think is a testament to the fact that they get really broad, general, but meaningful exposure to a lot of different specialties throughout the course of their training, certainly here in our program at UC Irvine. But I would say we don't necessarily discriminate against students who, you know, really are not focusing on general surgery, but want to move on to the next step. But there is inherently something very attractive about somebody that shares the same interests as you. Yeah. And so for somebody who's enthusiastically pursuing general surgery, there is some inherent bias that is somewhat undeniable. We don't consciously weed out people who want to go into plastics or want to go into cardiothoracic or want, any, or want to go into any of those subspecialties. But I think there is some inherent bias that occurs either with the interviewers uh, or the people that interact with those applicants that 
it's somewhat undeniable. I'm not by any means encouraging people to not be true to themselves or to feel like they need to put on airs or be phony about where their passions lie. I think people need to be very proud of where their passions lie. But if their passions are simply based on one rotation that they really like, they love their plastics rotation. So now I want to go do general surgery and go on to be a plastic surgeon. I would hope that they would have enough maturity to recognize that that may mean there's a whole lot more rotations that they are going to go through that might grab them equally. Mm -hmm. And so I always love to hear an applicant that comes in and says, you know, I'm interested in colorectal surgery because I had a really good mentor in medical school, but I really am am anxious to get an equal exposure to other things throughout residency. And I remain very open-minded. To me, that is very appealing because very few of us actually know for sure what we truly love and truly want at that stage in our lives. We just haven't had enough exposure. Now, you said something a minute ago that I just I started cracking up when you said it's the how you uh, do a really good job of helping the residents enthusiastically embrace general surgery. And, and as as someone who knows the surgical field, I'm like, that sounds like hazing to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean that in the, mono, in the most benevolent uh, manner. I, I actually take a lot of pride and joy in helping people fall in love with general surgery. And that's never, ever going to be, nobody's ever forced to fall in love. That's always has to be organic and natural. But I think mentors have a lot of ability to sway or influence that organic chemistry, so to speak. When you have a really good mentor you're naturally going to be drawn towards that specialty. And, and, and that's often how people end up deciding what they're going to apply for residency in, in the first place, is having really good role models, really good mentors, people that love what they do, doing a great job of doing what they do. And there's something very appealing to that, particularly when you get the trainees actively involved. You get them operating early on in their residency program and and really challenge them to, to learn the disease processes that they're operating on and fixing. And when people become masters of things, they tend to really love those things. And so... What I, what I really mean with my comments is that I, I push people to become content experts in general surgery early on in their residency, and that oftentimes naturally translates to falling in love with it. For a female out there who's interested in general surgery, it's no secret that women in the operating rooms are, are much less than men. How do you suggest they navigate this process and and really help them um, either make sure they find an environment that suits them or or anything else that you've seen uh, women have to navigate as a surgeon. So as somebody who is trained by a number of of fantastic female mentors, uh, some of which had career first and family second, and many of which had family first and career second. But regardless of which of those formulas it it was, they were able to find a balance that worked for them. Um, I I think that, uh, and I've strongly professed this to my medical students in the past, regardless of the lifestyle you're looking for, you need to start with a specialty that you love. There is no profession There's no specialty within medicine that anybody is going to enjoy doing for 30-ish years 
if they're not passionate about that particular specialty. So if you start by shopping for a specialty with lifestyle limitations, you're going to end up finding something that doesn't inspire you. If you start with the passion of what you love and what you enjoy and you get trained in that, you can always go find a, a career setting that allows you to balance work and life in a manner that works well for you. And I, I, there are a tremendous number of female physicians that I work with, both above my level and below my level, that I think are superb clinicians and, in fact, technically better than many of their male counterparts. So I, I think at the end of the day, men and women have equal opportunities in 2019 in general surgery. I think some females may be more reluctant to choose a surgical career because they don't necessarily see people having as much of the balance that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. But what I, would, what I really encourage people to do is find your passion, get trained in something you love. And if, if doing something you love two days a week gives you the work-life balance that works for you, you'll find that opportunity somewhere out there. But if you only work two days a week doing something you really can't stand and that you're not inspired by, that's going to be a pretty miserable existence, even if you're, you are only working two days a week. So I, I really encourage all of my female medical students to give general surgery a fair shake. I know a lot of female physicians that work part-time or they work compressed schedules or they work full-time and their husbands stay home. I, I think that you can have it all, but having it all means doing something you love in the process. And then finding the balance that works for you. So it's absolutely doable. There are plenty of opportunities for, for part-time employment or compressed schedules or an environment where you dictate your own schedule and your own lifestyle. So uh, general surgery. And in fact, one of the, and I'll keep this brief, one of the last arguments I would make is that one of the beauties about being a specialist or proceduralist as a female is you may be able to work you know, two days a week or three days a week and make the same amount of money you would make uh, five days a week as a primary care physician. What does that mean? That means that you actually now have some financial liberty, meaning that you've got the financial liberty to, you know, hire the assistants or for your husband to stay home and, and help with the family. There's a certain amount of liberty that comes with higher income. And that's financial liberty. It gives you more options to, to, to create the balance of work and life that you're looking for. So that's one of the added beauties that I, I don't know that anybody ever really talks about in a transparent fashion, but it's an important distinction. And I think that one of the beauties of surgery is it gives you a lot of uh, financial freedom. Yeah. For the osteopathic medical student, what do they need to be doing to overcome some potential negative bias out there? Well, I'm happy to say that I think for, for DOs, a lot of that bias is starting to sort of fall by the wayside naturally. Uh, but I would say it's important that they take USMLE just so it's easier to, to compare them to everybody else. Uh, and, and for the most part, most of them nowadays are. 
And so I think going and doing those external rotations, doing those sub-eyes where they get their letters of recommendation and people get to see that they're clinical superstars, absolutely critical. But I I would say the same thing for the allopathic students, Um, having competitive board scores with everybody else. And at the end of the day, if I've got somebody who's got a, a mediocre step one and they're a DO, but they were an absolute knock it out of the park clinical superstar on their sub-eye, either with me or at another institution, that to me is far more appealing than somebody who's got a 265 on step one um, and was an average sub-eye participant yeah. from, from a top name medical school. At the end of the day, I, I, I'm looking for gems. I'm not looking for showpieces for my program. I'm looking for people that are going to be fun and engaging for me to work with and train over the next five to seven years. And that are going to be easy to teach, fun to operate with, charismatic to have around, and are eager and hungry to learn. Those are the, those are the qualities that make my day interesting as, a, as, a, as an educator. As we wrap up here, what last words of wisdom do you have for somebody who may be interested in general surgery? Well, I would encourage uh, the, the medical students that are early in their career in the first and second years to really get out and spend some time shadowing any, any particular specialist that one may be interested in. Uh, it, there's a there is oftentimes a big difference between what somebody perceives in their own mind a specialty to look like and what it actually looks like when you go spend a day in the life with that clinician, with that specialist. So I think shadowing is very important early on in the first and second year of medical school so that you, you really get a, a genuine flavor for what the experience looks like in many of those specialties. I think in third year, people really need to be paying a lot of attention to sorting out whether they want to be one of the, whether they want to take care of patients with their brains or take care of them with their hands. And that kind of gets back to the proceduralist versus non-proceduralist decision-making. And then once they've decided whether they want to be a proceduralist, they need to figure out whether they want to do something surgical or non-surgical with their hands. Uh, I I sort of see these as sequential uh, decision-making points. And ideally, if somebody can figure out by probably springtime of their third year what they want to do and have that pretty well nailed down, it's ideal because then they can start planning out their sub-eyes in the fall. They can start uh, looking for mentors in the same specialty. Uh, I think people that figure out what's, what they want to apply for late in their third year are at an inherent disadvantage. And nobody chooses to decide late. But when they, when they come to that realization late in the third year, especially if they already have a less than stellar step one, they're a bit behind the eight ball and they haven't had good mentorship by then because they didn't know who to seek out. So I think trying to sort out earlier in the third year where one's passions lie uh, is beneficial. And then once they get that sorted out by spring of their third year, they need to be planning out their fall. They need to be planning out their sub-eyes in their own institution as well as their external rotations and be looking for mentors and ideally, you know, some research opportunities at that point if they haven't done some by then. And if all of those things are in place, then, you know, come late spring, take step two, knock it out of the park, and then start doing some research on programs that you think you may be interested in, depending on what specialty you choose. And that's sort of the the formula that I try to uh, encourage most of my medical students uh, to follow who, who come and ask me for mentorship counseling uh, at some point during, you know, prior to the, the middle of third year. 
All right, so there you have it. A ton of great information that I know every student, pre-med student or medical student listening to this can hopefully take some gold nuggets away from this and be a better medical student, have better rotations, and really show yourself off to the programs that you are interested in applying to and hopefully going to for residency. So hopefully you took a lot of notes, listen again, and please do me a favor and share this with a friend. I would appreciate it. That's what we ask in return for these podcasts every week. Just go share it with a friend. Hope you have a great week. Next week, we're going to take another listen to a sports medicine doc, this time an academic physical medicine and rehabilitation doc who is doing sports medicine. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.